My shift is that I actually believe that cultures who don't focus on performance first uh, won't be around for long. And so performance is number one. Um, and in fact, I would almost go and we've, we've pulled together a model around this where you know performance needs to be the base of the conversation that we come to and if we come to you know even the organizations that have needed to make the shift across COVID-19 and here in Australia we're in a recession businesses need to perform in order for people to have roles in order for people to have jobs in order for a culture to be able to exist. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we talk with an award-winning businesswoman, psychologist, CEO of a three-time AFR Fast 100 company, Pragmatic Thinking, and is the author of two brilliant best-selling books, Dealing with the Tough Stuff and Stand Out. Our guest has a Bachelor in Behavioral Science Psychology from Charles Darwin University and Griffith University. Her career has included roles as a rehabilitation counsellor at CRS Australia, pain management counsellor at IM Concepts, psychologist at Wise Mind Psychology, managing director at Change Works, and currently the CEO of Pragmatic Thinking. I'm honoured and privileged to introduce you to someone who loves supporting people through the tough conversations and transitions at work, is the host of the Standout Life podcast, a keynote speaker, and a professional head mechanic. Alison Hill. Alison, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much, Craig. I feel like you've done your research. <laughs> <laughs> Some jobs there I'd forgotten I'd had. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm a relentlessly curious type of person, so I would be um, a disservice not only to you but to myself if I hadn't done my research. For you, where did you grow up and, and what was kind of your childhood dream and, and, and what did you aspire to be? Oh, I think it's, um, it's, it's a brilliant question. And uh, I think for me, I'm not sure that I had a, a job or a title or something that I, I wanted to be, um, but I was always, I've been always kind of drawn to curiosity and just what makes the world tick. And uh, I was that child who asked why probably a dozen too many times, um, much to my my parents' frustration. Um, so I think I just knew I wanted to explore. I wanted to explore the world, uh, both in travel and adventure. Um, and I just, I wanted to contribute but I didn't really, you know, I wasn't the person who grew up going, oh, this is exactly what I, I wanted to do. Um, I guess going back to your question, where, where I grew up, um, we travelled around and moved around a bit throughout my childhood. My dad worked in uh, state forests and so in New South Wales and so we, we moved a couple of times um, when I was quite young. I was born down in Mildura, um, so I actually was born in Victoria 
which my dad reminds me on an, a continuing basis <laughs> that that's where I come from. Um, but I don't remember that. I was only there for a couple of years and then we moved up to the mid-north coast of New South Wales, a small town called Yurunga. Um, and so we always lived in these places that were close to national parks and rainforests and bushland and so very much grew up um, exploring the outdoors and being a part of the outdoors on weekends. My dad would take us on forest trails that he would find while while he was working. Um, so, so yeah, and, and moved in a couple of other places in mid-north coast of New South Wales. So I always felt comfortable and, and in some ways probably kind of still have that seven-year itch of what's next, like what's the next adventure, where else are we going and, and felt really comfortable to, um, you know, pick up and, and start somewhere else or find new friends or go down new pathways. So, yeah, I didn't really have a, a job that I, I wanted to go and do outside of once I finished high school. I did know that I wanted to go and have a year um, overseas. So I had a gap year, which um, is not unusual. It's what a lot of, I guess, year 12 and, and high school kids go and do. Um, I went to the UK, which again was very on trend. <laughs> it's what uh, what you do in your gap year. Um, but but for me, it was very much that that sense of adventure um, and exploring. And it was back in the day before mobile phones and before social media, and you literally only had one reverse collect call back home a week uh, <laughs> to keep in contact. And and yeah, I loved it. I embraced that that real adventure and exploration. Probably a part and parcel that is one of those personality traits is um, is being a part of who I am. You talked there about asking a lot of why questions and and trying to understand things. But did you also find yourself in a position where you were trying to solve other people's problems or provide advice as well? Oh, I always had the best advice. Like, <laughs> not that anyone listened to it, nor do they do now sometimes. Um, look, I I was very much and still am a deep thinker. So rather than the solver, I would be someone who would reflect or, or would see patterns or, um, you know, would, would probably more than anything stand back and take things in um, and, and sort of see what was going on. I do remember, you know, saying to my mum that, you know, I listen to all my friends, but no one listens to me, kind of that thing. I was, I was kind of there um, in that, you know, I guess support role or, you know, friend kind of role, um, but that sense of really kind of tuning in and taking it in. Um, I think in a lot of my report cards, and this is always an insight to what kind of child you were, um, I think every single one of my report cards says the word quiet on it, that I was this uh, child that was quiet and it was always a shock to me whenever I got my report card because I never felt quiet on the inside. I always felt really busy and active and there was a lot going on. Um, so I think that's that's just interesting in that reflection of what probably other people, you know, particularly my teachers probably saw of me uh, and yet my world was always kind of busy and, and, and figuring things out. So your reason to, you know, you found yourself as a psychologist, was that more to try and understand yourself or, or did you have that feeling to try and help other people and, and what was kind of behind landing in psychology? Yeah, it's, you know what it was, it was actually the entrance in science in trying to understand trends and patterns rather than trying to fix or solve um, or that there was anything kind of inherently um, 
you know, something that I was trying to solve in me. And, and, and that's, I mean, I think that's a human pursuit anyway, that we, you know, self-awareness and, and understanding what makes ourselves tick, uh, what presses our buttons is, is a lifelong journey um, for me. But it was, I was actually more drawn to um, the science and the research and the, um, you know, predictability or the, the hypothesis that sits behind essentially, which, which is what psychology is, is a, it's a science. It's really going down that sense of the experiment and understanding um, human behaviour through that lens. Growing up in um, high school, I was actually one of those kids that was always good at both English and maths. So I had this duality of loving both the art and the science. Um, there's something about maths and psychology is very much when you go and study it at uni, there's statistics in every single semester and you need to know your numbers and you need to be able to run your numbers uh, and look at outliers and look at correlations and all of that. Um, and a lot of people got into psychology and didn't realise that and, uh, and soon aborted and <laughs> went and did something else. Whereas I, I really, really loved that. I really loved looking for patterns and, and trying to identify trends and outliers and why would that response happen and what's, what's the context, like what is actually happening and, and going on there. So, um, yeah, I think it was less about solving and, and more about, um, yeah, just seeing the context and seeing the trends. And even now it's, I mean, it's been a long time since I was at uni, but even now I think psychology is a very new science. Uh, there's a lot more for this area that we will still see grow and develop the way that we understand, the way that we are trying now to understand how our brains work, how our brains actually communicate with other organs, including our heart. So we're assuming that you know, our brain is the, the centre of every message in our body and yet we're now finding that our heart sends messages back up to our brain um, and so that there is this duality of a conversation happening from a physiological point of view. So what does that mean for psychology? Well, that drives emotion. It drives, you know, breathlessness, you know, heart, racing heartbeat in terms of how we're feeling in a moment. So, yeah, I, I even now I still get really excited because I think there's a, a lot more to learn. <laughs> and, you know, for you talk about patterns and seeing patterns and how they work, etc. You know, for you in 2020, what was the most fascinating pattern or observation you have made so far that, may, that other people may not have seen? Mm. Oh gosh, how long have we got? <laughs> that's, that's, I, you know, it's um, when we talk about a collective experiment of human behaviour, we are smack bang in the middle of one uh, in a place that we haven't ever been before, I think. And we certainly track some of this, you know, from March and April. So here in Australia, March... And April was, was seismic changes for workplaces and I don't think there was a single workplace that wasn't affected or impacted, some with significant reductions and some with significant increases, uh, but certainly impact in the way they worked, who they worked alongside, the kind of products they delivered, everything. Um, so I think certainly one of the, the trends in the early stages we, we tracked and noticed it was this, it was almost like this novelty period. The moment change happens, people rise to the challenge. They rise to the change. Adrenaline kicks in and we just get done what needs to be done. 
Um, and if we're talking to, and certainly the CEOs and senior level leaders that I spoke to at the time, that's what they did. They put in the hours that were required. They, they worked 16 hour days to figure out what their people needed and what their customers needed and communicated constantly uh, more than they had ever done before, even though they were in the middle of, I don't know what to do here. We've never yeah. done this before. Um, and so there was some some trends or some, uh, I think, messaging at the time that was sort of coming out in social media around, well, isn't this nice to have some time to relax and to finally read the book and those sorts of things. And and I guess what, what I saw was this kind of almost complete opposite where in, in that, you know, corporate world, whether it was owners or CEOs who went, I don't have time to read the book. Like this is yeah. mission critical time to make decisions, to be present, to be talking to people, to be figuring out what the next step is. Because every strategic plan that we had has now just been brought forward to what do we need to do this week um, to get through. So I think that was certainly one of the the trends that wasn't probably overt um, and wasn't kind of talked about a lot. And I'd be curious in, in your experience as well, even now over six months on, um, I'm still sort of talking to, you know, senior level leaders and CEOs who are still working long hours and, and you know, still still finding a way in amongst, um, in amongst the change. So I think, yeah, certainly, you know, generally there was that novelty period of, you know, we get in and we sort it out. Uh, what happens when adrenaline's been out of our body for a period of time is that we get through this adrenaline slump. And then we find ourselves with a laptop on the dining room yet again, <laughs> working with a partner or, um, or you know, housemates who have got their own businesses. So all of a sudden we're working alongside other companies that we've never worked alongside before. And the novelty's worn off and it's not much fun. <laughs> and we sort of go through this slump a bit. Um, and so I think we, we've certainly seen that pattern of motivation, that kind of almost roller coaster of motivation go up and down. Um, the other thing I would add to it is that with that, there's again been a lot of commentary, people working from home or having the flexibility to work in different locations from an office who are actually saying, this is so much better. I'm so much more productive. You know, I'm able to choose how and when I work and I can bring my best to that. Um, and so, from an output point of view, the highs are higher than than maybe in a co-located um, team. But we're also finding that the lows are lower because there's not this uh, safety net of an office or co-workers. If you're having a bit of a down day or, or if you're in a bit of a funk, but if you do go into an office, there's some sometimes this safety net that, you know, someone grabs you a cuppa or you go for a walk around the block and all of a sudden you start to feel good. And you don't have that working from home. You don't have that same um opportunity to be kind of pulled back out of of how you're feeling and so i do think that is something that we're seeing now and probably just for the next little while is people to be really mindful that yeah that the the highs are high but like when it's good it's good uh, and it's really good there's not the interruptions there we we can have a choice about how we work and we can have a choice about what work can mean for us um but it also means that the lows can be low if we don't have that self-awareness and don't have the um, courage to reach out in those moments 
um, it, it can be tougher to work through. Yeah, definitely. It's been a period of, I think, for a lot of leaders and, and people in the workplace to actually develop a more intimate relationship with their colleagues and um, even their stakeholders. Are you seeing now that companies are coming closer together from an employee and team culture point of view, or are you seeing more of, of a, a diversion, I suppose, in that space? I'm seeing whatever was there beforehand is being amplified. Yeah. So if the culture was good, it's getting better. People are investing, they're putting their hand up, they're wanting to do that, they're reaching out. And as you say, you know, there is an intimacy, um, not so much now, but certainly when we when we first jumped onto Zoom and we're chatting on Zoom, um, is that the first thing you did was looked at people's um, backgrounds. Where are they in the house? What have they got? What photos have they got? All of a sudden we were invited into a, a different kind of context uh, with, our, with our colleagues and the people that we work alongside. Um, so yeah, definitely. And same with, with customers, that ability and I think the um, accessibility to be able to jump onto a video conference in a way that we had never done before and how easy that was to be able to actually connect um, and I actually think in a lot of ways that won't go away, yeah. particularly for a period of time that we've just realised that instead of jumping onto a call, say, oh, let's, let's jump on and have a quick quick chat and that, that ability to be quite human and personable in that is, is really strong. Um, having said that, if there's not the groundwork there, if, uh, if there is or if there was already a sense of distrust, uh, a, a level of... Um, there wasn't an alignment in a team. I think that chasm becomes even wider. Um, and it can be the reason why some, some people say, you know, working from home doesn't work. Um, and I would challenge that. I think there is, there is, it's, it's possibly harder and going to require a much stronger investment into the relationship and into the connections and into having the tough conversations that you have to have. But there were plenty of managers and leaders that never had those in an office space and they're now not having those <laughs> via yeah. a Zoom call. So, um, I, yeah, coming back to, to the response, I, I think whatever was there before is, is being amplified. Yeah, interesting. Interesting insight and observation there. I, I think one of the interesting things that, so from a conscious point of view, yes, it's more intimate. So you, you might have more eye to eye contact through the, through the camera than maybe what did, uh, what you did in the office. But however, I know as a leader, when you walk through an office, the subconscious things that you're picking up along the way, how is someone's body language? How is, how is someone talking today? How much work are they actually doing? When are they leaving the office? There's a whole lot more information that you pick up when you are face to face in the office environment that you don't you don't necessarily will pick uh, will pick up on a, on a Zoom call or in remote working. Is that do you think that's going to be a concern long term for leaders and and how they may perceive their staff members and their performance or their ability because they're only seeing them in these bite sized moments rather than a more of a collective moment. Yeah, I think it's a really great conversation for leaders to continue to have and to pull out some of those sometimes unsaid fears or concerns and make them uh, conscious and and almost be able to hear yourself say say those those things for sure 
um, because we 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 as human it's human nature to fall into habits and to try and find patterns. So the way that we the way that we work, the way that we have done things, our natural tendencies to go. I want to go back to what I know because that's what I'm used to. That's what I'm really comfortable with. Um, and yes, you're right. You walk through an office and you can pick up a vibe. You can get a sense of what's just gone down here or someone just being told off in the corner it's really icy (laughs) you can you can get that sense um i think i mean part of the opportunity to work from anywhere um is the opportunity to connect in and then we were just saying you know through zoom but probably connect in more often or more formally more consciously than you would in an office where you might um, not need to formally say, I'm about to walk through the office, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You don't have to kind of pull people in or, you know, uh, send out a link or anything like that. You can just walk through an office. So you're a bit more strategic and planned around the communication that happens when you're not co-located, when people are in different areas. Having said that, I do fundamentally believe that you can pick up on how people are on a Zoom call. You can still pick up on a vibe. You can pick up on a on a sense. We are able to still read body language, even if it is only from the waist up. Um, but picking up on kind of facial cues, um, looking at, you know, how often someone might speak up or lean forward in their chair if you're on a meeting versus sit back and and not really kind of take it in. So there, there is a lot of cues that absolutely we can still pick up. Um, and I know I've certainly done that, you know, with my team where I get a sense of something's not quite right in the same way that you would if you're walking through an office. And so then that's that kind of click of the dial to, I might pick out the phone and just check in what's, what's happening, what else is going on. Um, so I think you know, having having those communication channels and, and going down, um, being really conscious of picking up what you can through those channels is really, really important. In terms of the question, and this is a common one around productivity, what if they're not doing as much work as what I can see them or I can kind of prompt that? There's always downstream outcomes or outputs of effort. So sometimes that is... Um, the actual product or whatever it is. So if it's an email or a report that we're waiting on, you might actually receive that, but it might not be that. It might be that they're putting some questions to colleagues up on a Slack channel about that report or, um, you know, they've they've sourced a couple of photos from the designer and you can see that communication happening on, on a, you know, internal kind of chat function. Um, emails kind of being sent, those sorts of things. So you can still see evidence of effort, if that makes sense. Um, as well as what's that downstream outcome of of kind of what's 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 the result? So I think probably more than um, you would need in a co-located office, the importance of having um, project planning or effort planning visualized is really, really important. And there's all sorts of different software platforms that you can use for that. We have just shifted to monday.com, but Trello or Asana, um, there's all sorts of different tools that you can use for that. So that gives a commonality for an entire team uh, or an organization to be able to see where things are up to. And it actually, 
I, th I think actually can help move productivity even quicker than maybe what you would do in an office where you might do death by committee or we need to have another focus group or you know we think we need to kind of innovate and brainstorm an option here and we we have the assumption that brainstorming worked in the office and it didn't necessarily work it, it might have been that the loudest voice uh won or group think kind of kicked into gear so yeah group think we you know it's often was the the loudest voice in the room and yet um the the ability to have you know platforms for conversations or different tools that you can use for people to collaborate means and what we're finding we're actually doing this with teams um and clients that we're working with is that everyone is contributing the quiet introvert that in the office space wouldn't have spoken up is now offering up you know way more ideas than they ever would in a co-located team so um i know that was a very long answer to your <laughs> to your question but i think there's just different ways of doing it I mean, don't don't uh, downplay the ability to still pick up on on um, non-verbal cues and um and being really strategic and conscious around the communication channels well, actually, there's. I think there's a there's an opportunity for it to be even better than it was in an office space. Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot more proactivity in regards to projects and planning, etc., than maybe what we would have seen before. So I think that's a it's a bonus for many organisations and leaders as well. You talked a little bit there around performance. Is there a shift in the way we need to think about how we are addressing both underperformance? and also doing performance reviews. Yeah, I think um, this is something that has shifted for me for since COVID-19. Um, so a lot, so much of the work that we do is working with organizations around leadership development and, and culture change. And um, I'm a, a massive believer in the, in the impact of culture and how it can um, be a, a difference maker in an organization and that you know ceos and executives that talk about culture that um that bring culture to the forefront that are really conscious about the kind of culture that they want to create and uh, and stand for in their teams is important my shift is that i actually believe that cultures who don't focus on performance first uh won't be around for long yeah and so Performance is number one. Um, and in fact, I would almost go and we've, we've pulled together a model around this where, you know, performance needs to be the base of the conversation that we come to. And if we come to, you know, even the organisations that have needed to make the shift across COVID-19 and here in Australia, we're in a recession, businesses need to perform in order for people to have roles, in order for people to have jobs, in order for a culture to be able to exist. Um, so even just having that conversation around what does performance and that's different right what does performance mean for some businesses that'll be more revenue for other businesses that'll be um that that we get together more often or that you know there'll be there'll be a metric around performance that is relevant for what kind of business you are um but performance is really really fundamental so i think conscious conversations that we are number one here to perform um Number two is what are the cultures that then can thrive from a high-performing team or organisation? And then number three on the top of that is, well, how do we have the autonomy? So as an individual worker, 
How can I deliver on that performance, belong to a culture that I um, love to be a part of and be able to grow and express who I am through my own development? So performance, culture and autonomy are really critical, but they come in that order. So when it comes to, well, how do we have those conversations around performance? I think number one, you need to define what performance is. And like I said before, a lot of strategic plans that were already mapped out probably need to be reassessed at the moment. Likely that they, there's some reassessments of what does performance mean now? Um, we're chatting in September of 2020. So what does, what does that mean now? What does that look like? And even if it is performance for the next three months, if that's the strategic ballpark that we're currently playing in or it might be six months or kind of 12 months but in in times of uncertainty it's not that we move away from that we just sometimes bring the timeline much shorter so therefore people can step in and get momentum and get progress and be able to tick off some of that performance so clarity around expectations of what do we want to see what does performance look like and particularly what does high performance look like what does exceptional look like not just what do I need to have you deliver but where we need to raise the bar to so once you've set that expectation and really gotten clarity around um, and we often talk about specifically talking about the behaviors so what are the behaviors you need to see from people what do they need to be doing um, and I did, this morning for example we had a catch up with our team so even talking to one of our teams saying I want you to call every single person in my team and make sure they have the fonts that we need like that's a really clear, specific behaviour she'll deliver on, um, which is going to help drive performance for our business. So the, the clearer you can be about the behaviour that you are after, the much more likely that people will step into the, that behaviour. Which then comes to the second part of your question of how do you deal with underperformance, which is if you've been clear and the behaviour still hasn't been delivered, then having a conversation about that behaviour. So what we required was you know, a conversation with everyone so that they've got the fonts on their computer. Uh, what didn't happen was that, you know, there was a conversation with two people, but not with everyone. What I require is by the end of today, so setting a time frame, really clear on what that behaviour is that we need people to step into. Um, so having conversations, so it, first and foremost, not avoiding them, not assuming that people know that they are underperforming. So many people don't even know. Uh, managers and leaders will get so frustrated and yet they haven't had the conversation with someone uh, to really clearly set expectations and get clear on what they're looking for. Um, so making sure you're having those conversations, setting timeframes around when that shift, um, when you're looking for that shift to happen uh, and then setting a time to check back in and get clarity. So often underperformance, and it's not always, but so often underperformance is a lack of, um, there's assumptions at play. People yeah. think that they are doing a great job, um, but it hasn't been made clear around what a great job looks like. Um, and so, the, and, and because that conversation has been avoided, they've just assumed they've been doing a really good job. Um, so I think in this in this um, platform, and particularly for work from home, is it still important to have those conversations? And, and around, I think performance as well. I, I think there's people got to be very careful of. 
okay, we're in a virtual environment now, so it's okay just to send a text message or it's okay to send an email um, like a teenage kid would when they're breaking up with their girlfriend or boyfriend. <laughs> it's so important to you know make sure that if you are remote to have the videos on so people can see you, you can have a real conversation. I think if you do it without the videos on, it can be taken out of context a little bit easier. And so I think that makes a lot of sense when you're talking about the clarity of everything involved, you know, expectations and then being able to follow up on those and provide accountability as well. Yeah, the problem with um, problem with an email or a text message, while it feels quick and I've addressed it, um, what it can do is lead down the path of even more confusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're in this kind of spiral of, you know, not only performance going down, but now trust is going down because... Where I'm not really clear about what you mean, you haven't really said it, but I've just kind of given my best crack, and I I can't be bothered picking up the phone to you. So why like why would we bother? Um, so it actually takes more time, even though it feels quick and easy. <laughs> um, so having those clear conversations, jumping onto a video conferencing, as you say, absolutely. Second to that, though, um, my caveat to that, and I'm, I'm absolutely a kind of an eye contact person, a visual person, I think that's really important. Um, one of the things, and we, we write about this in Dealing with the Tough Stuff, the book, um, is when you are having a tough conversation, when you are doing that face-to-face or with eye contact, um, people can take it quite personally. So eye contact and and doing things face to face is where as human beings this is where we build rapport and relationship and connection and so even though i might be talking about your report if i'm having that conversation about your report it can feel very personal like you're having an attack at me and the moment it gets personal the the receiver will get quite defensive well i didn't even start it and someone else did it and why are you blaming me and not them and it feels like the conversation doesn't really go anywhere um but it gets personal because we do it in this personal space we do it in this space where we build rapport and we build connection and so we actually use um a strategy called using three-point communication and what that means is is there a third point a third space that you can direct the conversation to so that the conversation can be about it the report rather than about them as a person so it's not about you craig it's about the report that we need to get out this afternoon. And so how do you do that in a video conference um, when all you have is a webcam and <laughs> that doesn't really make sense? So the couple of tools that I would um, suggest definitely get onto video conference and you can still you know, build rapport in the how are you going and what's happening and hey, we, we need to have a conversation about the report. There's a few things we need to go through. So when you get to the bit that you need to give the feedback on, that tough part, that, that you can either say share screen and have the report in front of both of you. And so that then becomes the third point that you are then talking to that. And it might be that you go to the section of the report that we need improved or we haven't quite got this nailed here, here and here. Um, and so that generates a third point. Another option if you can't do that is actually having the person have a pen and piece of paper at their end and you have a pen and piece of paper at your end and even getting them to write something down. And it might be even just a continuum. So on the scale of one to 10, how about you get a pen and piece of paper now? If you've got a blank piece of paper, I want you just to draw a continuum, draw one down one end and down the other. 
Um, and I'm going to ask you, where do you think we're sitting in our customer service at the moment? On a scale of one to 10, write it on your piece of paper and they might go, oh, I think we're an eight. And you go, okay, well, that's interesting. So if I had one on my end and I do, I think we're at a three. So then you get to talk about what that difference is and the difference in perception. Because when I think of an eight, I'm, I'm, I would think this, this, and this is happening. And the reason I, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing that, so that's why I rated a three. Tell me why you rated it as an eight. But the third point is actually the pen and paper that they have at their end um, that is then talking about customer service rather than who I am as a person. So, and then when you get to solution and you're wanting to solve, what are we going to do next? And the next time we want to connect, that's where you can then go back to your video, get back to that face-to-face -face conversation. Yeah, I think that's, it's really important um, to, to provide that kind of third-party aspect and, and take away the th thinking that's all about you. Um, really, really good advice there for people that are listening, um, which I think is fantastic. When, uh, when we're in a situation where we're wanting to build out our team and, and develop new team members, right? So, so great leaders always create more leaders and not followers. So how, how, do you, how can we do that more effectively online? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think one of the ways is, I mean, in the same way when we are co-located, is continue to have conversations about where we want to go. Um, and so that might be the aspiration for the organisation or even just for your team. So you might not have an influence or you, your role might not be at a level where you're making decisions for the organisation but you can still influence the team. So it might be, um, where do we want to be strategically? But it almost also might be answering the question of who do we want to be? So what do we want to be known for? What do we want to be famous for? Um, who do we want to be in relation to the industry um, or to the people that are connected to us? And particularly in this time of uncertainty and change, I think there is an opportunity, regardless of what industry that you're in, of being the people who are there during the hard times for others, uh, your customers, your clients, your um, the people that you work alongside. So I think having those, those kind of conversations um, allows those kind of leaders who, who have a heart for that, who have a drive towards that aspiration and that goal, to start to speak up, to be seen, um, and possibly even put their hand up and say, hey, I'm connected to that too. I'd, I'd love to see a pathway or I'd love to kind of help out with that. It does require a, an environment of encouragement to ask people to put their hand up, um, to be seeking that out. But I actually think, um, and I only heard it this morning on a podcast I was listening to, that um, in this time of teams going to more of a virtual space, that and I'm, I'm wondering whether you've seen this, Craig, as well, that there are leaders who rise up. There are kind of those incidental leaders, not by title, but people who reach out to their colleagues and just say, how are you going? Or start to you know, lead others through a project or come together for the organisation because they can see they're going through hard times. Um, and there are leaders who are in leadership, in positions who are going quieter in these times. Um, 
and the podcast I was listening to this morning was kind of postulating that that maybe that's because they were very good at office politics but not particularly good at leadership. Yeah. And so whether this this environment actually does almost cull back some of that and and allow leadership to rise maybe in areas that was was quieter when we were co-located. Um, like I said, I'd be, I'd be really interested to know whether you've you've noticed any of that or what you've seen in, term, in terms of leaders rising up. You're definitely seeing the leaders who come from more of a caring, loving kindness type of value and, and type of person. We're really seeing that shine through. And I think it's because normally when you're in office space, you've got so much noise. There's so many people around and, and your, your perceptions of what other people are thinking seem to be upfront and, and personal for them. Whereas when you're in the home environment and you maybe just have the computer, it's a lot easier for them to think about things, digest things and, and be able to put things out there without fear of judgment. And, and we are probably in the one year of our life where there is going to be the, probably the least amount of judgment we're probably ever gonna experience at the moment. So I think that's allowing those people to really shine through. Um, and, and I think that because of the intimacy of being on video and for them, for the people that can see themselves as well, they, those that tend to be, as you say, run the office politics type of thing, they start to see their behaviors being reflected back to them in like a mirror. And so they start to get a little bit more self-aware and a bit self-conscious as well of what their behaviors are. So I think um, the true leaders are starting to shine through. I think that is a, a really good um assessment of what's happening in this situation and is and, and you find those that are normally quite loud will quite often have their videos turned off and then they start to go quiet because now now they can kind of they, they don't feel like they have to be saying something because they're not seen in front of everyone like they they kind of feel like they're in this little hidden bubble yeah so it's a it's a fascinating little world that's going yeah. on Something, I mean, something just even from a really practical level in terms of this communication, you've just brought up, you know, videos videos on or videos off. I think the encouragement that they're on um, more often than not is really, really important. And I think that can be a bit of a warning sign for a culture of a team if that trend starts to be that, you know, collectively people are starting to turn videos off. Um, look, I understand there are times, small kids, all of that sort of stuff where it can feel a bit more comfortable to have them off, but that should be the exception, not the rule. Um, and if you give people enough warning time uh, to have themselves set up and, and be aware and say, look, we want to be a culture where we see each other, where we're still connected because that is really important. I think that is critical. Certainly, um, and the other thing I've found in, depending on what kind of catch up it is, meeting or connection, um, but a kind of team connection, having microphones on all the time helps just to keep the conversations going. Um, obviously getting people really good microphones or trying to be really mindful of background noise helps to encourage that. But it stops this stop start thing that can happen on Zoom yeah. and people talking and being on, on mute and, and it feels a bit disconnected and dis disjointed. Um, that really serves having video and, uh, and having mics open is, is really important. And I think the, the chat function where people can type in there rather than speaking has opened up a whole new type of person as well in their workspace. And I think that's great to see because they feel more comfortable expressing themselves in the written word rather than the spoken word. 
Um, yeah, so that's yeah. really cool to see too. And I think that's um, that's going to continue to rise across the board, the importance of being able to connect and communicate in that platform. Um, something came to mind when you were talking about the leaders kind of rising up and, and what can we see in this virtual. I think those that are, you know, aspiring to leadership roles or in leadership roles but want to kind of aspire to that next level, I would almost come back to that model that I mentioned before, leaders being able to be seen and visual and talking about performance. And bringing performance to the conversation is going to be critical uh, and then culture and then autonomy so so again you know leading and aspiring leaders thinking about how they're turning up at those three levels for their for their teams and their business is going to be important have you also found that because we're online and, and people kind of feel like they get zoom fatigue etc so they're kind of limiting the amount of t- like the amount of time meetings generally tend to go are you seeing people that um are actually putting out better call to actions or at the beginning of meetings they're they're clarifying what the outcome of it is a lot more effectively than maybe what they would have before because they know they've got a short amount of time so now they have to be more effective in going here is the outcome we're looking for from today's meeting or, or this session and I've got this much time and then quantifying that. Yeah I think so definitely um, kind of this far into the the COVID-19 experiment. Um, we've been kind of figuring figuring that out. I've always been a massive believer that different we have different meetings for different purposes and I think the same is true um, in, in a virtual environment. And so there are times where we are connecting that's completely action outcome. This is what we want. This is the agenda. This is what we need to run through. We need to make sure that everyone's heard so that we are all on the same page um, to use a bit of jargon but so so yes and that it's okay to hold space for the and we've certainly done it with our team where we'll just jump on and have lunch together yep. so whoever's around at 12 o'clock open up zoom what are you having for lunch there's no agenda there's nothing else jump in when you want to jump out when you want to we're just kind of hanging out so I think it's in it's also important to think about different meetings for different purposes um, and if you can get some of those, um, you know, more connected uh, or more culture-based connections as well, and that um, and that they they don't have to be regimented or even predictable. It might just be, hey, whoever's around at three o'clock this afternoon, I'm going to be having a cuppa. You know, jump on and we'll we'll have a cuppa together. Um, that that that's that's okay as well. And and whilst it's still on Zoom it can help with that fatigue because I don't consciously have to be on. I'm not, I'm not mapping all of the actions that need to come out of this, which is what can, um, can add to it feeling tiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done some of those where people will jump on and do walk and talk. So we're on Zoom, but people are on their phones and we've had people on roller skates and others out, you know, doing workouts and others down by the beach. Um, and yet we're, we're kind of connecting that way. So just mixing it up um, actually helps to, to change that. I tend to do most of my meetings <laughs> that I need to, where I don't need to be visual. I'll do it um, out mountain biking. And what's quite funny is I know I've got a time limit because I know there's certain spots where they don't get coverage. So it's like, okay, I need an outcome because I've got about two minutes. <laughs> That's right. Let's get it sorted. I love it. <laughs> With, as, as we you know progress through our current situation and you know as, as we go back, from back to a little bit more face-to-face and back into the office in over the next one to two years. There's some things that you're seeing already that leaders are going to need to be aware of 
both good and bad as they go back from a remote working world to maybe a hybrid model or even full-time face-to-face? Um, I probably will answer this in two parts. The first one is um, I think it's an interesting language uh, that going back because I think it, it's, it can be a sense of I will go back to as it was and yet we know that's not going to be the case. Um, but nor is it ever the case. You know, where we were 12 months ago is never where we are. You know, that's always been mm. the circumstance. And yet um, I think being quite overt in, our, in language around that is going to be important because it can just set up an unconscious kind of sense of, but it's not the same. And I now am sanitising and, and there are, you know, red arrows that tell me where I have to go and stand and there's only three people allowed in the lift. And so it's not the same. Um, and certainly for those that are starting to have that, even for a day or two a week, um, that's that's their experience, that it's, it's very, very different. Um, so I think it's being aware of that difference and just understanding that we're, we're about to do something that we, again, haven't done this before. So it's similar probably response from a, um, a motivation point of view when, when we had to make those changes in March, April, um, and then making those changes now, some will, uh, there will be this kind of novelty period of, well, I wonder what this will be like. I wonder, you know, where I'll be seated. I wonder how much hand sanitizer I have to put on in a day. Um, and then the novelty period can wane. I'm back to commuting. I'm back to, you know, I want to be doing this. So just notice and understand um, that both in leaders to be really aware of that for themselves, but also for their teams to kind of normalize that. This is something we're figuring it out together. We're putting plans in together and um, we're just going to, to notice that as well. In terms of the more long-term thinking for leaders, CEOs um, and emerging leaders is that working in a, whether it's hybrid, so we talk about hybrid um, and I think this is going to be part of the vernacular and language that we use for a long period of time where you have the option to come into work for a couple of days but there's also a bit of that working, whether it's working from home or working from anywhere. So people might prefer to work at a local cafe. Some might prefer to work at a co-working space. Um, and, you know, some might work at a holiday house. Like there's, you know, that that kind of hybrid option and flexibility. And we've seen that flexibility is, is absolutely an option. Um, and so organisations are navigating what that means for, for their people. Um, and there's a huge amount of upside in that. Um, so... I think for, for, for the future leaders, it's going to be a skill. How do you lead? How do you motivate? How do you engage um, a team and an organisation, uh, either virtually or through a hybrid model? I think it's going to be a core skill that's going to be required of every leader in the future. I actually think it's going to be in recruitment uh, processes if it's not already. Uh, where's the evidence where you've been successful? In leading a hybrid or virtual team so that skill is here to stay um so and i think there's a huge amount of upside um in both of those if we come back to that question of well what do i want work to be and what do i want work to be for my people in a way that we can perform and deliver what the organization needs that we can do it together in a way that 
I feel connected and um, I'm raving about the people I get to work alongside and that I am a better person because of it. Like I am growing. I am, you know, whether I'm a better mum, I'm a better parent, I'm a better friend, I'm a better colleague, um, I'm a better partner, that I'm better. So part of that performance culture and autonomy is um, is going to be a really key part of it. So, yeah, I think the skills that we're learning now are going to serve leaders into the future. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Mm, um... There's a part of me that wants to go really deep there and there's another part of me going like, what's just something really? <laughs> Yesterday I went to an AFL match and swam in a pool next to the AFL match. That was the first time I've ever done that. In COVID <laughs> as well. <laughs> so I apologise for the uh, the listeners in, in Melbourne, in Victoria, who we've got your AFL at the moment. Um, yeah, that was amazing. Look, I think that's a great question. Um it's a, it's a great question, I think, for all of us to be asking ourselves on a regular basis. When, when was the last time we, we put ourselves out there and did something for the first time? Um, during this time in our business, so business pragmatic thinking, um, so much of our work is face-to-face delivery. And I know, um, Craig, you operated in this space as well. That all just changed. And so we've doubled down and invested into basically TV quality studio for uh, virtual learning and virtual engagement and, and to rave reviews where um, we've had clients say to us, you have you have ruined us for every other experience we've had online, <laughs> which is phenomenal. Um, but in a lot of ways, I feel like we've gone back to a startup business this year and it's been incredibly creative, incredibly energising and really, really exciting. Um, and so that has been something we've done for the first time, setting up learning technology, using camera angles for different learning experiences, uh, looking at kind of lighting, what kind of colour clothes look best through virtual platforms. Like all of that has been incredibly new so um my non-humorous answer would be um would be yeah setting up setting up a couple we've just about to launch our second one tv quality studios and really learning how can you engage um leaders from all over the world uh around building great you know skills and capabilities in the work that they do brilliant what is one question that you would love to solve Oh, that is a great question. Um, the one that comes to mind is how do we hear more voices in our decision-making? And I would love to solve that. Um, so in our decision-making inside organisations, in our decision-making in our politics, um, how do we hear more voices? Now, it's not to say we have to listen to those voices but I think the opportunity and the importance of understanding different perspectives is really critical. So yeah, that would be my question. Ooh, that's one of the best I've heard. I really like that. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? 
I think it is this beautiful mix of contentment in a moment, so being content whatever the moment you are in, um, whilst always being pulled to the, the adventure of what's next. So whether that's mountain biking, which, you know, when you're really there present, you just can be contented in the moment, um, but always knowing that there's another mountain bike trail out there, that there's another twist and a turn or another jump that you can't quite land. Um, so this beautiful paradox of being right here and being pulled to the next, I think that's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, nice answer. How, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Craig. Um, pragmaticthinking.com is is our um, home on the interwebs. Uh, so uh, we're connected on all the social medias. So LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Instagram. I'm Ali Hill on, um, on Instagram is where I mostly live. Um, but the other place would be, so yeah, as you mentioned before, my podcast series, Standout Life, which is on all places that podcasts hang out. So yeah, people can tune in there. Alison, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, you know, from your early days growing up in Victoria and then into the New South Wales northern um, sort of coast area. And, you know, for you being very curious and, and wanting to know why about so many things in life. And I can really feel that today. I can feel your sense of curiosity and your really um, deep thinking about different things in life. What you've been able to achieve with pragmatic thinking is quite impressive and I, I love seeing the work that you're doing and you, know, you talk about there about the studio I had a look um, earlier today as as well around the video that you've done around how that looks and I'm very impressed I've only seen a couple similar styles around the world everyone else is still kind of living in their bedroom and so I really like that forward thinking around you know that we're getting in here for the long run we need to deliver the highest quality if we expect to be working with the highest quality leaders or people in the world and so I really appreciate your, your ability to think ahead and go, you know what, this is what we need if we want to stay ahead of the game and stand up and be noticed. Um, thank you for sharing your insights, your knowledge, um, your ideas, and for delivering some great answers to a couple of tough questions at the end. So Alison, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Craig. It's been such a delight. Thank you. Thank you for listening to an exceptional conversation with Alison Hill, building leadership potential remotely on the Active CEO podcast. When transforming from a startup to a medium-sized business, it can leave you feeling both excited and apprehensive at the same time. To enable organizational change that maintains an inspired workforce, delivers a competitive advantage and capitalizes on new opportunities. A holistic approach is required where you address the whole picture of your company's leadership, energy, strategy, and organization. I've found that the LISO quadrant approach for transformational change management provides a holistic approach necessary to maintain the fundamental DNA of your company while allowing it the flexibility to grow and evolve in a way that supports the new demands that more people, projects, and performance require. The LISO Quadrant approach involves the integration of the following four areas. 
leadership. And as we know, leaders create leaders. Energy, energy is the number one currency in leadership. Strategy, simplification is sophistication. And the fourth one, organization. Having clarity on your vision makes it easy to say no. So those four aspects of the Lizo Quadrant approach are leadership, energy, strategy, and organization. And you require all four to be working together for your company to be successful through that change management. If you'd like to find out more about how the Lizo Quadrant approach to change management can help you, then please contact me at Craig at NRG, the number two, perform.com or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website. Thank you so much for listening to this special conversation today. I am Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.